Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The North in Numbers, a podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'll be your host, Annie Doak. As a data journalist, I write local news stories based on statistics for regional papers up and down the country. Each fortnight, I'll be looking at the figures that particularly affect the North and speaking to experts and those most affected to get their take on the issues facing our communities. This week's episode is all about the surge in mental health issues seen across the UK in the wake of the pandemic and the massive strain this is putting on services, with unprecedented demand and huge backlogs. We spoke to some of those who've been affected in the North, including a teenager who saw her eating disorder blow up during lockdown, and a young man with bipolar disorder who ended up in hospital after struggling to access treatment for his worsening symptoms, as well as experts from mental health charities working on the front line. Dan McLaughlin is 27 and living in Salford. He is one of many people across the country who saw their mental health decline as a result of the pandemic. The pandemic definitely worsened my symptoms to the extent that I had to go through the extremes and get treatment, particularly being hospitalised and arguably institutionalised as a voluntary patient on, uh, on, on a mental health ward. Now I say that with a chuckle because um, it's, it's just bizarre thought that I would ever be institutionalised on the mental health ward. It's just something that I thought would never happen, but it happened to a great deal of people over the pandemic. We had two pandemics. We had the coronavirus pandemic and we had the mental health pandemic, uh, both of which are still carrying on. And I think the mental health pandemic is going to last far longer, far beyond uh, COVID-19, I think. According to the World Health Organization, in the first year of the COVID-19 crisis, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25%. Meanwhile, the number of referrals for specialist NHS mental health care reached a record high in England by the end of 2021. There were 4.3 million referrals for conditions such as anxiety and depression last year, up from around 3.8 million referrals the previous two years. Stuart Lucas of national mental health charity Mind says those working within the mental health sector have long been warning about a wave of mental ill health as a result of coronavirus. We are now seeing that wave of mental health. We are now seeing that both in terms of people who are already ill or in danger of being ill. You know, we have definitely seen an increase in the severity of conditions. And that's something that the voluntary sector across the board is seeing an awful lot is when people are presenting, they are presenting with more complex issues. But we are also seeing an increase in specific conditions uh, on the back of that. You know, we are in the middle of the mental health surge at the present moment. 
In Dan's case, COVID-19 and the resulting lockdowns had a massive impact on the type 2 bipolar disorder he'd been diagnosed with several years earlier. The condition affects the mood, seeing it swing from extremes of depression, feeling very low and lethargic, to mania, feeling very high and overactive. The pandemic for me was a perfect storm in terms of my mental health, um, because the moods disorder that I already have can be really illogical. Um, the, the episodes do not r- rely on rhyme or rhythm, they just happen. So depression, number one, I felt. Then sadness through what was happening through the pandemic, isolation, what was happening through the pandemic, um, plus a sprinkle, a cocktail, a smorgasbord of many, many other things, whether it's previous traumas or anxieties generally. So unfortunately, they all seem to come at once for me. The pandemic exacerbated that really. As Dan has already mentioned, things got so bad that he ended up in hospital. I had had self-harm thoughts and suicidal thoughts to the extent over a period of a week I had had multiple suicide attempts to which um, one of which thank God thank whomever it may be up down middle below I was stopped by the police the police took me to hospital uh, to accident emergency um, to which then I was referred to the mental health team which then followed me being a voluntary patient on the mental health ward for a number of weeks. As Stuart explains, some people have been hit harder by this wave of mental ill health than others, including those who may have lost their job or those living by themselves who are more vulnerable to loneliness during lockdown. He says children and young people have been particularly affected. Younger people's mental health was massively, massively affected by it. And I think we are still seeing that resonation to this day um, in terms of demand for CAMS and other mental health services, but even just in, in terms of how young people are reacting. Looking at my children, my, my youngest child, six, actually, this was two years of his short life. Two years. And that's literally a third of his life he's been on Earth. Actually, this was happening. And I think we just really need to give some perspective, even just for younger people, about just how much this completely and utterly changed their lives. A big part of that has been the disruption to schools, which were initially closed to slow the spread of the virus and have continued to be affected by staff shortages due to illness or self-isolation measures. Actually, for a young person who does have the beginning of a mental health condition, the worst thing you can do is to then rip away their support network, which is in many ways what happened during COVID. You took away those people, that socialisation. There wasn't the friends at school that they saw on a daily basis that's there all of that was taken away and many 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 thousands of people were left isolated james emmett is the regional clinical lead for the north of england at place to be a children's mental health charity working with pupils families and staff in uk schools he's seen firsthand how the pandemic has been affecting kids the the very basic needs of children uh when it comes to you know their parents being financially stable having homes having food all of the the very basic needs, um, even physical needs, have been threatened during this particular period. But also the thing that we usually do as human beings to to access support, you know, so being around people, social networks, being with family, getting hugs, all of those things have also changed. And if you think about young children, particularly sort of five, six year olds that, that we work with in our schools, a place to be, it's gone on for nearly half of their life. Um, So it might have been two years for us, but two years, you know, for me as a 45 year old is a much smaller percentage of my life. 
and being in and out of school and all the places that we've told children are safe haven't been safe for the past two three years um, and all the people who they would go to for help um have been potential a potential threat carrying this invisible enemy so it's been really really scary and if you think about all the parents and all the grown-ups in the world have also been wobbly that's a tough place for children to to be in and it's almost definitely going to affect many many children's mental health while people of all ages have seen their mental health affected the data does suggest that children and young people are suffering even more than adults Data analysed by Quality Watch, a joint programme between the Nuffield Trust and the Health Foundation, shows that between April and September last year, there was an 81% increase in referrals for children and adolescent mental health services, also known as CAMS, compared with the same period in 2019. The number included more than 15,000 urgent or emergency crisis care referrals, which was up by 59%. In comparison, there was only an 11% increase in referrals for adult mental health services over the same period. I asked James why that's been the case. During the pandemic, adults have been stressed and anxious, you know, and many of us, although there's been little glimmers of sunshine in the middle of it, you know, we've clapped the NHS and we've, you know, um, said hello to our neighbours and we've helped out. And that's wonderful. The human spirit, you know, is, is incredible in these sorts of situations. We know it's been really, really tough. But if you think about the difference between adults and children, adults can rationalise a lot more what's going on. They can decide who to believe and who not to believe. They can decide what news to watch and not to watch. And, and they've got a lot more choice and control and agency in their life. And one of the things when there's a traumatic experience or something really difficult happening to us um, that helps us is control, you know, knowing what we can what we can and can't control. And that powerlessness really, really um, amplifies our mental health problems. This issue of control may be why the rise in demand for mental health services for children and young people has been most notable in the increased need for eating disorder treatment in particular. Across England, nearly 12,600 young people were treated for eating disorders in 2021. That was up by 29% compared to 2020, and the highest number in five years. Meanwhile, the number of children and young people attending emergency departments primarily for an eating disorder doubled from 107 in October 2019 to 214 in October 2021. Joe Whitfield is a spokesperson for BEAT, the national eating disorder charity. Eating disorders are actually often likened to uh, kind of like coping mechanisms. Um, And when people are faced with like those changes to normal routine that that we did see in the pandemic, that can be particularly difficult for anybody who is um, experiencing an eating disorder. And and kind of being away from those support networks. Um, So um, during the pandemic and during the lockdowns, there was so much disruption to young people's lives and, for example, not being able to attend school in the normal way and not being able to interact with their their friends and uh, peer groups. It, it, you know, it, it did put an, an, a massive pressure on young people and, and, it, and it has unfortunately affected those who were experiencing an eating disorder. And we have also heard from people where, where an eating disorder is pr- perhaps presented for the first time during the pandemic. So we have seen an increase in the numbers of people and young people as well reaching out for support. We know that this has led to a major increase in referrals of children and young people and more young people within um, with eating disorders have been coming forward and presenting as urgent cases. 
Amy is 17 years old and lives in Greater Manchester. She's training to be an elite gymnast and is studying at college to eventually enrol on a science course at university. The numerous lockdowns had a particularly strong impact on her mental health and her battle with anorexia. I wasn't like aware that I had like underlying eating disorder, but I had been struggling with food, so I'd lost a bit of weight and um, and I'd been like overtraining in things. But it wasn't till I got put into lockdown like it started to like come to the surface. So I had like a lot more time on my hands. So I was like training six hours a day. Like, I had a lot more time to like plan my food and prep my food. So it was like just what my world consumed around food and physically I had no other distractions. And then especially with like all the media going into like making sure you get your steps in and then it like hit me. Well I'm not I won't be walking to school. I won't have all that exercise so I need to do extra so it was just like what they were putting out in the media me as I was already like vulnerable I attached myself to that and like blew it out of proportion. She says it wasn't just something she struggled with at mealtimes she struggled with it constantly. As well as physically like mentally it took a toll on me because like I couldn't concentrate on things when I was training it got to a point where I couldn't even like count how many reps I was doing and I knew deep inside me that I can't do this, but my mind like overtook and just kept pushing and pushing me to a point where I got referred to the eating disorder camp thingy. When you first go, they check you like your heart rate and everything, and it dropped so much that I had to go to the hospital and then I had to have loads of tests. Amy's eating disorder also put a lot of strain on her family. It caused a lot of conflict between us because they would be telling me not what to do but I just wouldn't listen to them and I'd go and do it anyway and like meal times although they used to be like a fun thing as a family it just turned into like hell so it like a Sunday dinner used to take me like an hour to get through it and normally like that was like the highlight of our week during lockdown but then it turned into everyone used to dread it. As Joe explains, the rise in eating disorders among young people during the pandemic is a huge concern, as the consequences can be devastating. Eating disorders are serious mental illnesses. Um, they unfortunately do have high mortality rates, with anorexia uh, tragically having the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And we see one in six people with binge eating uh, disorder trying to end their life. So they are serious mental illnesses. And while this is obviously the worst case scenario, there are many ways in which eating disorders um, can severely affect the quality of life, both of those suffering and of, of those who might be supporting um, a loved one with recovery, so parents siblings, uh, wider family units. Eating disorders, unfortunately, they, they, they can absolutely steal childhoods and devastate relationships and, and they can pull families apart. But it's really, really important to remember that with the right treatment, early treatment and support, that recovery is, is, is absolutely possible. Amy was on the brink of being hospitalised with anorexia, but is now receiving treatment after her mum sought help just in time from her nearby community eating disorder service, run by Pennine Care NHS Foundation Trust. At the start of my recovery, it was all like focusing on weight restoring and getting my body to a, to a healthier place that I could go for a walk without my health being at risk. And I could go to college without participating in practical lessons and stuff. But now 
it's more transitioned into so weight restoring but building a healthy relationship with food because I feel like maybe the perception of eating disorders it's a lot around you don't eat and things but like you've got a low weight but even you can be a healthy weight and still like have an eating disorder it's like the relationship you have with food I'm definitely still on the road to recovery but I'm in a much better place than I was when I first went into treatment and I definitely wouldn't have been where I am now without treatment. Joe stresses that it's vital people get the support they need early on. At BEAT, we know that the sooner somebody accesses um, eating disorder treatment, the better their chances of making a full and sustained recovery from an eating disorder. If people can access community treatment um, quickly, then they are far less likely to need inpatient treatment in hospital. Inpatient treatment is reserved for those who are most unwell. So it really is essential that uh, people are seen as soon as possible and able to start their specialist um, treatment for an eating disorder so that that eating disorder doesn't have a chance to develop into something far more serious that, that, that does require hospital treatment. So early intervention really is, is key. I asked Amy if she thinks her condition would have got worse if she hadn't received treatment when she did. 100% if I didn't, if my mum didn't take me for that treatment, I'm all less know for a fact that I would have been hospitalised. Luckily, she didn't have to wait long to get that support. Because I'd got to a point where it was like, I nearly had to be like hospitalised. Like I think I didn't have to wait long at all, thankfully, for treatment. But I think that's because I was a severe case. So although it's like a negative, it was also kind of a positive because I got the help I needed at that time. However, unfortunately, not everyone is lucky enough to get treatment so quickly. NHS targets say that children with eating disorders that are deemed urgent should start receiving treatment within one week of being referred. But the latest figures show that waiting times have been deteriorating since the start of the pandemic. Between October and December last year, only 59% of urgent cases started treatment within one week, the lowest proportion seen in the last five years. As of December, more than 200 urgent cases and over 1,900 routine cases were still waiting for treatment the highest number on record. Joe explains why waiting times have been on the rise. There has been a, a significant rise in demand for eating disorder treatments during the pandemic. There's also been a prolonged strain on NHS services. So staff are under immense pressure and have been working incredibly hard throughout the pandemic but they are also, um, on top of everything else, facing um, significant staff shortages. And we know that frontline staff um, within the NHS are working tirelessly to help those in need, but they are not able to cope with the um, ever-growing scale of demand that they are experiencing. We are seeing that waiting lists um, are continuing to grow with very long waiting times, um, unfortunately, becoming much more common than before the pandemic. And it's not just eating disorder services that have been affected. According to the NHS, as of December 2021, an estimated 1.4 million people were still waiting for mental health treatment. Meanwhile, the data analysis from Quality Watch revealed that one in five children and young people waited more than 12 weeks for a follow-up appointment with mental health services between April 2020 and March 2021. 
As James at Place to Be explains, for some children, that wait for support can make all the difference. But the idea of what's too long, it's really, really difficult to answer because, of course, a day might be too long for one child. You know, when you are, you know, at your lowest ebb and you're feeling suicidal or self-harming, which we're seeing an increasing amount of in our schools, you need help right at that second. Um, and of course, you know, as a, as a parent myself, you know, I really, really um, sympathise with parents of children that are struggling because, you know, every second that your child is in crisis feels like an eternity. And as you can imagine, those children on that waiting list, quite often their needs increase so being sat on a waiting list, not getting a place to be, we are really passionate about early intervention and prevention, but we're so you know busy in all of the services dealing with the, re the children that are really, really struggling and really need urgent help and are in crisis that it's hard to invest time and people back in the early intervention piece. So you're absolutely right. We're seeing waiting lists increase and that then can have a detrimental effect on those people on the waiting lists. As it is, the charity is seeing an increase in severe cases. We are seeing much more suicide ideation, much more self-harm. This is within the place to be services in schools. Much more relationship issues, children in primaries worrying about you know, uh, tests and exams and transition. So, so we know that there's much more of a need out there. Joe is also seeing a rise in severe cases at BEAT. What we're hearing um, from clinicians um, on the ground is that people have been presenting much more unwell than before the pandemic started. And therefore, the services are having to prioritise those severely unwell cases. So resources are you know, used to um, help those people who are most unwell. However, that does then lead to uh, what, what we've spoken about, these long waiting lists. And the risk with those waiting lists is that while a young person is on that waiting list, waiting for treatment to start, then the risk is that they then become more unwell themselves. So we, we, it's, it's a little bit of a vicious circle right now. While these backlogs are due in part to unprecedented demand, they've also been directly affected by lockdowns, as James explains. So if you think about just the, the mechanics, you know, during the early part of the lockdown is that actually just a lot of services just stopped. You know, they didn't know how to provide a service that wasn't in person or face to face. And also lots of people were off ill. So the simple supply and demand issue of um, we knew that a lot more people were feeling anxious. There was a lot more need. And then, but there was a lot fewer people able to supply that demand. So waiting lists have built up, you know, people have had to put loads of time and energy and a place to be, we're not an exception. We had to completely restructure our whole model to a digital delivery or a, a remote delivery, not knowing when it's going to end or not end. And, and that takes its toll on those human beings in all of these systems. So, you know, the people, when we talk about the NHS, we're talking about a collection of really well-intended people who want to help and want to make a difference, but have been stretched, you know, I'm guessing to beyond breaking point at times and in some areas um, with an ever building waiting list and a, an, an ever increasing demand of acute, you know, severe needs. Dan experienced these issues firsthand when he tried to access support for his worsening mental health prior to being hospitalised. The problem was accessing the GP, number one, was exceptionally difficult to get a phone call. Like, obviously, during lockdown, we couldn't have person-to-person -person chats with our doctors. 
which for something like a mental health issue, it's I think it's important to do it face to face rather than over the phone. It's difficult for a doctor to diagnose any health condition, but it's exceptionally difficult for um, a doctor to diagnose a health condition and mental health condition over the phone. So it took, took ages to get the phone call. The phone call was short, without detail, and the, the only recommendation was to up my medication, not provide other treatments, and it was suggested that um, other treatments that I wanted, including counselling and um, addiction therapy, um, were not going to happen for a while. It's not going to happen for, for a while. They want, it could be months, could be weeks, could be months, which for someone going through these emergency sort of crisis in their life was staggering to think that I would have to wait months where the issue was now. If I was having a cardiac arrest, if I was having a stroke, if I was having an asthmatic attack at that moment, I would be seen to immediately. And they are all life-threatening things. But because it's a mental health issue, which is still a life-threatening thing, the priority is still not there for that. They do, they do not treat mental health conditions as a health condition. Mental health is almost a subsidiary, an add-on to the NHS, where it should be a core part of our health service. As Stuart at Mind explains, it's not just the NHS that is currently overrun. Charities are also struggling. Well, and I would say not just NHS services, voluntary sector services as well. It's across the board. We are seeing massive waiting lists. And that's because people are reaching out for help. And actually, this is concurrently with a workforce crisis. The workforce is not there. We don't have the workforce. Uh, and that's basically been caused by a number of issues, basically pandemic, by Brexit, by the fact that we, we already had a decreasing work, uh, workforce before this all happened. Uh, but this has all exasperated that. And, you know, the, the, the bottom line of it is we don't have the people to fill the jobs. That's not to say you're unlikely to receive help at all, particularly if your case is urgent. People are being seen as quickly as they can. And where people are really ill they are being prioritized. So what I don't want to give into impression is a completely broken system, because frankly, it's not. At the present moment, we we are trying to see as many people as we can through as many different um, sort of, uh, through as many different sort of, um, you know, um, avenues as we can. But frankly, we just don't have enough people. As Joe has already mentioned, the problem with urgent cases being prioritised is that those left stuck on waiting lists can see their mental health get worse. We definitely know people are getting iller and basically people are reaching out for other services because they are unable to be helped. And we would very much like to help as many people early on as possible. The issue we have is that capacity. We are seeing an increase in people turning up in A&E with mental health conditions. And that mostly is because people don't know where to turn. People are desperate let's be honest you know people are desperate people don't know where to turn A&E is not the best place person place for a person who is in mental health crisis you know anybody who's been in an A&E unit at 10 o'clock on a Saturday evening it is not the best place. Figures show that more than 270,000 people attended A&E departments in England between March 2020 and April 2021 with a primary diagnosis of psychiatric conditions, including more than 27,000 children under the age of 18. 
And while not all of those attending A&E will actually be admitted to hospital, in many cases, such as Dan's, people find themselves on a mental health ward. Stuart says this isn't ideal. One of the worst things you can do for a person with a mental health issue is put them in hospital. You know, actually, the best thing to do is for that person to remain within the community, to remain at home with the support around them. Actually, hospitalisation for a person with a mental health condition is, is, is basically the last option. I asked Dan if he might have avoided hospitalisation if he had been able to access treatment sooner. Oh, goodness, yes. If there's early intervention, there'll be, I would not have been as distressed or in such a low point in my life if there was someone there to catch me before I plummeted. That would, definitely would have saved me from hospitalisation. Hospitalisation was the extreme. It was the last resort. No one wants to end up in a and certainly no one wants to end up in a with a mental health condition, and no one wants to end up on a mental health ward. It is the single most frightening thing I've had to endure in my life. And if there was treatment beforehand, if there was support beforehand, I would not have had to endure the stress of that experience to which now it still haunts me. I am, I still feel the trauma from my time on that ward. Despite the severity of his condition, Dan also didn't receive any treatment while in hospital. On the mental health ward, you have a visit. It's called doing the rounds and it's where a doctor comes to see you once a week. Just the once a week, even though you're in a crisis mode, you are at the lowest of law and you've had these harmful, dangerous thoughts. Someone sees you for once a week for about five minutes. And, and again, that's nothing against the doctors. It's just they don't have the time. You've got this influx of people with mental health issues that's going to continue to rise because of the pandemic and not enough doctors to support them. So that there were no therapies during my time on, on that ward. It was just a, um, a holding place until you magically felt better, which for a lot of people doesn't happen. So that, to the extent trying to get medication was exceptionally difficult on that ward. I'd spent 24 hours in a e waiting to get help for the condition before I was transferred to the ward. I was withdrawing from my antidepressants and at the time my mood stabilizers and I didn't get those medications until the day after. So 24 hours and then an extra day. I self-discharged myself at, with talking to the doctors. Um, I waited a whole day to be discharged because there was no one to have enough time to get the medication from literally downstairs. It was basically sort of a um, purgatory for mental health and if there were treatment on that mental health wards my recovery would have been quicker and I think a lot of people end up on these mental health wards for a very long time a very long time people there for weeks months and people in and out of these wards because it's just there to remove people from society and not effectively treat them not give them the medication the support the counselling whatever they need and he found it no easier getting treatment once he was discharged this has been a process of self-help because there's no help there um, afterwards. Um, I was referred to the home-based treatment team um, after my stay on the mental health wards, to which I had one meeting for 10 minutes, and they said, well, there's nothing really we can do because the, we're just overstretched. There's, there's no sessions we can offer you because um, it's just not available. So I had to sort of, I, I took the time off work, thankfully allowed to take a lot of time off work, and had to get myself through it through the love and support of family and friends. Um, the only contact I've had since was a questionnaire about my time on the mental health wards. And I had to ring the GP to let them know that I'd been on the mental health wards and to have a chat about my, my medication. 
which again was a five minute phone call. Problems with accessing mental health treatment and long waiting times for some were already there before the pandemic, but they've only got worse, as Stuart explains. I would say in terms of the issues that the NHS has, you know, this is boiling, bubbling away already. And I'm going, you know, and some of it is about funding. I would say mental health, mental health has always been what's known as a Cinderella service. You know, mental health has always been funded slightly less because actually there will always be, you know, the big acute hospitals, which are the ones dealing with those who are physically ill. They will always basically try and swallow up most of the money, which is no disrespect to any of my colleagues in that work. But, you know, there was always thing about how do we create that, that, that parity? But I go back to the answer probably to every question I've given. This is a work, this is not, this is a workforce issue. And, you know, the, that workforce challenge was bubbling away there, but a number of different issues, whether that be, you know, Brexit, whether that basically be, um, you know, pandemic, there has just absolutely and utterly taken it and just made it not just 10 times worse, but hundreds of times worse. Dan agrees, having had experience of these services both before and during the pandemic. He was first diagnosed with depression at the age of 18. If I were to prefer, the treatment wasn't exactly fantastic when I first sought it, but that's nothing against the mental health nurses and the professionals. That's just the circumstances that they have to deal with. But you have definitely seen the decline. Um, my, my negative um, experiences before the pandemic were, again, it's time. It's the time it took to get treatment. The time it takes to get counselling, where you are told that you might have to wait a matter of months to get your first appointment with counselling, and when you finally get counselling, or you get six weeks of it free on the NHS. Just six weeks, which is nowhere enough time for some people to talk about complicated health issues. If you were a cancer patient going through chemotherapy, you would not get your oncologist saying after six weeks, oh, sorry, by the way, we've got to stop now. You've had your six weeks of chemo. And in the same way for mental health patients that have a similar rate of mortality, if we were to be blunt, if you're told six weeks you're done, then it's insulting because a, your mental health crisis will not be resolved in six weeks. It's a long, long journey to, to get your mental health sorted. So it's the time it takes to get treatment and then the minimum treatment that you get, you get an absolute bare minimum. As Stuart has said, part of this is to do with funding. James also highlighted this as one of the main issues that has been holding back mental health services. We haven't got money overflowing in the NHS and, and there's always going to be a limitation and choices being made about where to fund different resources. Um, and I think before the pandemic, you know, we were having similar conversations about waiting times and pressure and trying to find the solutions. Yeah, that's that's the problem of, of funding. You know, everywhere can really, all the different departments and all the different needs and social health and education need as much resources as possible. And there's always a reason to give more. And I guess there's always then a, a problem when that you've only got one pot of money and it's it's got to go somewhere. And it's not just funding into mental health services themselves that has been an issue. Stuart also points to the spending cuts to social services we've seen over the last decade as a part of austerity. The investment into those areas that potentially stops people becoming mentally ill, those may well have been cut. So that support in that social side, you know, this is where we saw massive cuts during the austerity years, um, you know, to local authority stuff and local authority services and to all of those bits and pieces, the benefits to there. Actually, 
whilst mental health services themselves may well not have had their funding cut, actually those services that support people to stay well may well have there. And actually what we may well be seeing is evidence, especially around that poverty thing, of people who actually sort of because they have had services that they rely on within social care cut, that is over years cause mental health conditions to develop. As Dan explains, these issues are widening mental health inequalities. You, you, you have this social class gap when it comes to mental health, because for those who are struggling to get mental health treatment on the NHS, they then turn private. Now, for someone to be able to turn private, that means they tend to be quite affluent. They have a bit more money in the bank. They tend to be middle class over working class. And that's why there's a, there's a, there's a mental health crisis across the entire country, because mental health doesn't discriminate. It affects Everyone from all walks of life, what does discriminate is the way that we treat it and fund it. And that's why there's a mental health crisis for the working class, because when it comes to desperate times and we can't get the bare minimum on the NHS, we can't get anything at all because we can't afford it. And mental health treatment should not be about whether someone can afford it. It should be a basic right in the many ways on the, in our NHS that there are provisions there for the basic health treatments for all conditions, well, most conditions. And unfortunately, um, mental health is not part of those most conditions. There is a strong link between poor mental health and deprivation. Figures show that children and adults living in the poorest 20% of households in Great Britain are twice as likely to have a common mental health problem as the most affluent, and in particular are nine times more likely to develop a psychotic disorder. As mentioned, part of this is due to access to treatment, but mental health can also be affected by factors such as employment and income, as Stuart explains. Mental health conditions in the main don't just appear. They are basically, in many, many cases, they are the product of many social economic issues. They are the product of poor housing. They are the product of um, sort of poor economic opportunities. They are the products of, of, of job issues. They are the product of all of those. And that is only just going to be exasperated with the fact that we are on the verge or in the middle of a massive living cost crisis, we are going to get poverty increasing. And very sadly, mental health conditions and mental health issues and poverty go hand in hand. Stuart believes that targeting these underlying issues is the most important step the government can take to tackle the mental health pandemic the UK is currently facing. I think for me, it's about the biggest issue is that poverty, that side of it because that is going to affect people with existing mental health conditions more and it's going to drive people into mental health so i will go back to the points i made before about benefits you know we know people on with mental with existing mental health conditions are, are sometimes in the main more likely to be on benefits to more likely to not be able to work it's those basic support around that that's the biggest thing i would say to the government at the present moment you know sort of there is an awful lot of money being thrown into the NHS and the hope is a lot of that awful lot of money being thrown into the NHS will basically go into go into sort of mental health services. Our biggest issue we have at the present moment is the poverty issue that we have gaping on us at the present moment in this country. Actually, we need to look after the most vulnerable because actually the most vulnerable are the ones who are also most vulnerable of developing and having mental health issues. Meanwhile, James wants to ensure that these conversations around mental health continue, even after the effects of the pandemic wear off, particularly when it comes to funding early intervention. I think what we need to see is that the profile of mental health 
the awareness of mental health um, doesn't drift away as the pandemic does. Um, because quite often when there is a crisis um, and a global awareness of something, uh, there can be a real peak in interest um, and in funding and in, you know, conversations. And, and I think we really need to see that sustaining and maintaining. Mental health has always been here and it'll never go away. And mental health isn't a good or a bad thing. It's what we've all got all the time. Um, it's just health. But when we talk about mental health problems and emotional well-being, you know, and children struggling with that, we need to really make sure we're prioritising it alongside. So it does have that, you know, we look at it in a similar way as we do physical health. Maybe it would be great someday just to hear everybody talking about health rather than one or the other and one getting more funding or more more profile than the other, you know, more conversations. I think it would be great to see more funding um, and more priority around that. It's very, very hard without extra resources to reverse that that pattern and, and get back into um, there's a there's a brilliant analogy that somebody once told me I don't know who came up with it but it's about imagine a, a cliff in a beach and um, there's all these sorts of children on the beach you know who've kind of fallen down the cliff and and we're driving up and down the beach in ambulances and we're just putting more and more ambulances on the beach because you know the beach is littered with children that need us but until we climb up the cliff and put a fence at the top and put signs at the top and and you know teach children how to climb and, and keep safe we're always going to be putting more ambulance on those beaches. Um, and that's where we're at at the moment. And the staff in these systems, their mental health is, of course, struggling. It's huge pressure. And it's very difficult when you are in that system feeling powerless yourself. So if ever, the, the idea what we need to do now is get as much early intervention support in place so that we can all be part of reversing this tide. Funding is a key issue for Dan as well. This is not the doctor's fault to an extent. It's the criminal underfunding of the NHS, not just of the mental health services, which have been criminally underfunded for the last 10, 12 years. Uh, and then when the government announces that they're going to have record funding for mental health services, what they're doing is plugging a gap that they left. And it's not near enough catching up. But another thing is um, funding our GPs, funding our basic treatments and giving the right training to the GPs something that if you had the money there and the support there for these people, then there will be support for people who are going through this mental health pandemic. If you treated the mental health pandemic with the same efficiency and immediacy as you did with the COVID pandemic, you would have saved lives in the past two years and continue to save lives. Similarly, Joe at B also wants to see more money channelled into these services. Government leaders really must ensure that enough funding is made available to eating disorder services so that every child and young person can access treatment quickly in their local area. And this will also help to support the healthcare staff who are working on the ground, um, who we know have been working tirelessly during the pandemic to support people affected by eating disorders. The government said its NHS mental health implementation plan sets out the need for the mental health workforce to grow by more than 27,000 by April 2024. A Department of Health and Social Care spokesman said, It is vital that everyone can get the right support when they need it, and we are delivering the fastest expansion in mental health services in NHS history, backed by an additional £2.3 billion a year by 2023-24. This will benefit hundreds of thousands more people. 
He added that the government had spent an extra £500 million to help those whose mental health had been impacted by the pandemic, as well as establishing 24-7 urgent helplines at all NHS mental health providers. However, while he welcomes more funding, James also emphasises that the responsibility of tackling the surge in mental health problems among children and young people goes beyond NHS services. We have to work with what we've got whilst always pushing for more, um, but work as a whole community. And I think that's the key thing. Children and adolescents' mental health isn't just the job of the, of the NHS and the statutory services. It's everybody's job. Um, and we're all part of it, just like safeguarding. You know, it's everybody's responsibility. The system is doing its best and is imperfect. And there's you're probably going to be waiting times, you know, somewhere at some point for the foreseeable future. However, it's, it's who else can be involved? Do, you know, does every child need the child and adolescent mental health services or could somebody else help you know could we get that early intervention piece going and really help children build their emotional literacy and capacity and talk about feelings and as a lot of children have their own resources that we need to help them tap into they're great at certain things and they have friends who they can talk to and building that resilience in children and young people from the very start putting mental health on the same level as physical health when we you know in education we need to really invest in that so that those children aren't the ones knocking on the door of CAMS five years later. So we're all part of the, the solution, hopefully. Amy also highlighted the importance of education when I asked her what has helped her the most in recovering from her eating disorder. For me, the education around like food and looking after your body and things, because what I was doing, it was driven by a belief that I had. So like, say I'd read something on the media and I took that and that fueled what I was doing so fat's bad for you but I didn't like I stopped when I stopped eating fat but like through the education like from a dietitian and my therapist and the doctors that's an essential to your diet and your health and you can't live without it but I didn't know that until I became anorexic and it's although like a lot of the advice out there it applies to most of the population for those who like are more vulnerable to like eating disorders or take things like as we say like literally it can be really detrimental. She added that if people had a better understanding of eating disorders they might be able to notice signs sooner get help faster and ultimately reduce the severity of their condition. She said this is especially important at schools, as eating disorders are most common at school age. With the right understanding, kids may be able to notice if a friend is struggling with an eating disorder and know how to support them and get them the help they need. Education is also something that Dan brought up when I asked him what has helped him the most with his mental health since being hospitalised. So the best thing for me was to take time out. It was to take time out from work and life generally. And I was very fortunate, which a lot of people don't have, is spend that in the loving company and family and friends who completely support and understand my condition and are learning more and more about it as, as it goes along, which proves that education about mental health conditions is integral. Um, because at the very start of this journey, they didn't have a clue, they didn't, didn't know how to support me, but as they get along, go along, they get better at it. So mental health education is so important, whether it's at school or the workplace or just generally. As well as educating people more widely about mental health, experts say there needs to be more support within schools for pupils with mental health issues. 
There is an increased demand for in-school counsellors and mental health support teams, but a recent report by a government education committee found the majority of pupils do not have access to this, and that government funding and legislation is not keeping up with demand. The government has set a target of providing mental health support teams to a quarter of school students in England by the end of this year, rising to over a third of pupils by the end of 2023. These mental health support teams work between schools and CAMS to provide early intervention on issues such as suicide prevention, eating disorders and self-harm. I asked James if the targets go far enough. It's fantastic that they have these targets and when there's so many competing priorities in the world right now, you know, I'm sure any person listening to this podcast could list out 20 things they think the government should be spending their money on and putting their money towards. And mental health has always been on the shelf a little bit when it comes to those competing resources because it's something that's invisible something we don't always think about much as a society but I think as I said during the pandemic people have thought about it more become more tuned into it and we are seeing more resources go that that way of course it's not enough it's not right that two-thirds of children won't have that support in school you know so we want every child to have access to emotional mental health support when and where they need it and usually for many children not all you know because school isn't always the best place for some children it's not always a place they feel safe and sometimes you know can be a, a scary place but for so many children the majority school is the place where they can learn about things they can access support they can grow and get help when they need it And we want to make sure that just like there might be a school nurse or there might be, you know, first aiders. We want to make sure that there's there's people of the emotional and mental health equivalent in schools, but that also we're building the, that resilience and emotional intelligence and we're giving children the tools they need to cope with, you know, the curveballs life will always throw at us um, as they grow up and learn about everything else. Joe would also like to see more dedicated eating disorder support within schools. Eating disorder awareness training really is essential um, in school environments to ensure that um, schools based professionals, so your teachers, your uh, support workers can identify those early signs of an eating disorder quickly so that they are then in the best possible place to be able to help pupils to be able to spot potential you know signs and symptoms in in the young people that they are teaching and to be able to um yeah identify those early signs of eating disorders quickly and be in the best possible place to be able to help their um, pupils however while he believes schools and teachers need to play their part when it comes to children's mental health james doesn't want to simply add more pressure onto staff who are already stretched thin it would be really great to see more structural changes within the education system to allow teachers to have the capacity to actually support. Because what we need to make sure is that we don't keep adding to the jobs of people in schools or in health services and social care, whilst not increasing the amount of people that are there to do it or the time they have to do it. We've had so many teachers contacting us who themselves are struggling with their mental health. You know, they're human beings. They've been doing homeschooling their own children whilst schooling other people's children whilst dealing with a pandemic and then we say oh can you also do this and can you now be a mental health champion and I think we really all need to make sure that we're looking after their well-being as much as the children's. Similarly he thinks parents need to take care of their own mental health if they want to be able to support their children. Do your best but also look after yourself and there's two reasons why we need to look after ourselves you can't you know you can't pour from an empty jug 
um, and we need to make sure that we're well and grounded and not stressed out um, when we're dealing with our children who are feeling that way. You know, if a child sees you looking after yourself in a positive way, they're going to learn more from that than you telling them what, how to look after themselves. So and don't do it alone. You know, there's other saying, it's like it takes a whole village to raise a child. Um, and yet so many of us can feel so much sort of guilt and shame and sense of failure if we have to reach out and ask for help. Every time I've done it, and, and you know, I've done it hundreds of times, I've asked for help from friends or family or school uh, in relation to my kids, um, I get a really amazing response. And usually people go, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know where you're coming from. I've experienced that too. So don't isolate yourself, look for help and take it one, one step at a time. James offered some further advice for any parents who might be worried about their children's mental health. Don't feel like you have to go and research everything that your child's going through. Don't feel like you have to give them answers. Sometimes they just need you to listen. And, and for a lot of children, and mine are no uh, exception to this, sometimes what it's more comfortable for them to share things with you whilst you're doing something, you know, off for a drive, off for a walk, playing pass and catch with a ball, drawing next to each other, playing Lego. Um, it kind of takes that Spanish Inquisition sort of like interrogation vibe off and, and um, just makes it easier. Get creative, you know, do some drawing, do some painting. Words aren't always the easiest way for us to communicate. Um, so yeah, give yourself a break, take a breather and just listen, just listen. Joe also had some advice for parents who might be concerned about a potential eating disorder in particular. So if you're worried about um, a child or a teenager, our advice would be that you contact their GP as soon as possible and ask for um, an urgent appointment. We would always advise if you are worried about your child to try and talk to your child about your concerns and remind them that you are there to, to support them. And it's best to have that kind of conversation outside of mealtime, as, as mealtimes can be quite distressing for a young person who is perhaps experiencing an eating disorder. And even if your, um, your loved one says that they are doing okay and that they are fine, then do keep an eye on how they are and don't wait too long uh, before talking to them about it again. I asked Amy if there was anything she would like to say to other young people struggling with an eating disorder. One thing I just want to make clear is that don't make yourself severely ill just so you can get help sooner. Definitely don't do that because it will, in the long run, it will make your recovery longer and a lot harder. But those waiting for treatment, I'd say, hang in there. It's like, it's so annoying when people say it does get better, it does get better. But it takes time, it's not going to get better overnight, but it will get better. And waiting for that recovery, like it will be 100% worth it and investing in the recovery and treatment like you'll have no regrets whatsoever and you'll look back at yourself from where you are now like even when not even when you've finished treatment but when you just get up the way and like you'll think you'll think so much differently and so much better and it doesn't just change you in the better like in the area that you're struggling with but as a person as a whole and you'll be like although you have to struggle more in the first instance you'll come out a lot stronger than those who don't have to struggle so although it's not ideal, it's sort of a blessing in disguise. One of the things I struggled with was feeling like there was something wrong with me. Why am I feeling like this? Why am I doing that? It's not what's wrong with you. It's whatever you're struggling with that's 
called in that so remember you are still in there and like the true you still in there it's not dissipated it's just being covered up and that's what the treatment's all about like finding the you again and you will do that and it's not dissipated I promise. Stuart is also keen to emphasise that mental health problems do not define you. The mental health condition is not you. It is just part of who you are in the same way that you also like cooking, in the same way that you also like, you know, sort of new metal, in the same way that you also like flowers, in the same way, you know, you you, you don't like things on ITV. You know, it, it, it's, just, it's just part of who you are. And I think it's that understanding of that mental health condition doesn't define who you are. And in many cases, mental illness is something that comes and goes and can go and can go for good. One of my personal biggest worries is as people begin to experience depression and anxiety more because of that, people are going to think that's them for the rest of their life. And actually, in most, most cases, it's not. He also had some advice for people who might be worried about their own mental health. I think the first thing I would say is talk to somebody. If you are worried about your mental health, then the longer you leave it, the worse it potentially can get. I think number one is you don't necessarily need to speak to a professional. Just talking about it is good enough in many, many cases. Bottling it up is not good for you. Let's be completely honest about it. However, if you are worrying, if you do need interventions, talk to your GP. You know, I know there are concerns about that, but actually that's your way forward. They are your entry point into the system. And actually, your GPs are still open, the GPs are still functioning, that's their job. Meanwhile, despite his difficulties getting help from mental health services, Dan wants to stress that this isn't always the case, and also encourages anyone struggling with their mental health to seek treatment. I've described a very negative experience of um, my experience on the mental health ward and getting treatment, um, and not every experience is negative. Getting mental health treatment, whether it's in or out of a pandemic, is a long journey. Like I said, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the quickest way you're going to get to your recovery is starting that journey immediately. So do seek help immediately. It might take time, it probably, you know, it will take time. Just the way the health service is right now, it's going to take time for your mental health recovery. But that's okay. Take all the time that you need, but start now because the sooner you start, the sooner you're going to get to feeling better, getting the support, getting the help, the treatment, the medication that you absolutely need. So start that treatment now if you feel that you've got a problem because mental health condition is a health condition. It's not a separate thing. It's a health condition. If you're an asthmatic, you get an inhaler. If you're diabetic, you get insulin. If you've got a mental health condition, you get treatment, whatever that may be. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The North in Numbers, written and hosted by me, Annie Goke, and produced by Mark McGill. A huge thank you to my guests for sharing their experiences and expertise. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, you can find details of helplines and links to other mental health resources in the podcast description. Please join us again on the 6th of May for Football Special as we take a look at the growth in support for non-league football in the North and find out what it is that's been drawing fans further down the pyramid.